And I think it's largely when you see new technologies, new tools uh, for the left hemisphere to play with, you get this sort of switch towards a, a left hemisphere dominance in a culture, in music, in art. And I think we're seeing that today. Hey there, James here, and you're listening to the Own the Moment podcast, the show where we explore the complex and always evolving landscape of marketing, advertising, and branding, and try to get to the bottom of what it means to be a truly memorable brand. The Own the Moment podcast is brought to you by Como Technologies, a self-service, complete customer engagement platform that helps you cut through the noise to truly connect with your customers and retain and grow those connections over time. With Como, you can build and deploy new campaigns, activations, promotions, and programs in days, not months. And our software is used by some of the world's biggest consumer brands from Heineken to Budget, Goodman Fielder, Foxtel, JLL, Williams Racing, and McDonald's. Learn more at Como.tech. This week's guest is Orlando Wood, the Chief Innovation Officer at System One and author of two must-read books for marketers, Lemon and Look Out. If you've ever wondered why TV ads don't feel as memorable or fun today as they did in the 90s, well, Orlando can tell you why. Orlando's two books, Lemon and Look Out, employ a unique mix of neuroscience, cultural history, and advertising research, and explore how an increase in left-brain thinking has spread like wildfire across marketing and business, and argues in a very compelling way that this is to blame for the huge decline in advertising effectiveness over the past 15 years. Orlando and I had a great discussion about the crisis of creativity, why truly great advertising today is so rare, and most importantly, what marketers, creatives, and advertisers can do to reverse the trend and build effective and engaging campaigns. Let's get to the show. Orlando Wood, thanks for being on the show. Great to be here, James. So I found this quote from you, Orlando, that was, we're in a golden age for advertising technology, but far from a golden age for advertising creativity. And I've heard you say we're in a crisis of creativity. So let's start there. Tell me what's going on. Yes. Well, that's actually on the front cover of my book, Lemon, isn't it? And I think it encapsulates really probably the thinking in both my books, Lemon and Look Out. And I describe in both of them how in this digital age, there have been enormous changes, not just in advertising, but in culture and a shift, particularly in advertising towards a different style of ad that is not so good at lodging the brand in memory holding, capturing attention, and eliciting an emotional response, all the things needed for lasting effects, for share gain, profit gain, reducing price sensitivity, all the things that we should be concerned about as marketeers. And as what often happens is, you you know, in times of technological change, we spend an awful lot of time looking at the new tool and trying to get to grips with it. And this changes our ways of thinking, our habits of thinking, and we can become a little bit more linear in the way that we think. And we lose some of the craft that went before. It becomes an industry. What was a, a craft hmm. profession really becomes an industry. And, you know, you end up sort of concerned with the quantity of output and less on the quality of the output. And that's, I think, probably what has happened to some extent. It's interesting. I had Jamie Pete on from McCann, oh, yeah. who has done a lot of work with Aldi. And, you know, he made the same observation the other day, which was, you know, this was going back in time, you know, 
craftspersons industry and it's become much more of a commodity. So, you know, we're going to dig into, and I, of course, deeply recommend everyone go and read Lemon and look out. We're going to dig into this idea of left versus right brain advertising. But before we do that, why does this matter? So you say there that the advertising is not as good. You know, how do we know it's not as good? What do we mean by not as good? And how can we see that this is happening for those that are maybe not sort of deep in the advertising sector? Well, look, there have been for a probably a hundred years, two schools of advertising, one that is concerned with, I suppose, achieving direct sales in the near and short term future, one that is more targeted. And then there's the other type, which is sort of broader, more general, that seeks to create lasting effects on people who may not be in the market right now, but might be in the future. Hmm. And there are different ways of measuring course the results of advertising and those two types of advertising and what my starting point really for lemon was peter field's analysis of the ipa's effectiveness database and he looked at the ability of advertising to create market share gain relative to the amount that was invested in it so a brand's share of voice or excess share of voice which usually translates into market share gains if you're spending more than your size relative to your competition. And he, through a long analysis over years, showed that advertising was less able to create these lasting effects, this market share gain, starting around probably around 2006, 2008, that sort of time. Mm. And things were getting worse and worse. And that shows that This second type of advertising, which is actually the more important type of advertising, this broad, general kind of advertising, was not doing the job that it needed to be doing. Hmm. Whilst at the same time, you know, he also observed that we're spending more and more of our budgets on and our objective setting actually is becoming more and more short term. Right. So it's a sort of switch away from the broad and general towards the narrow and the specific and the targeted. And the thing is that that second type of advertising works better. In fact, it really needs the first kind of this brand building, you know, as we've historically have called it, this general broad kind of advertising for it to work at its very best. Mm. And we're focusing more and more on the narrow type. And that's the problem. And that means that it is very difficult to see sustained growth that's kind of what the starting point it was peter's analysis Mm. of it all and then of course in lemon i look at the sort of style the aesthetic if you like of advertising over 30 years or so and show that there was this change in advertising style pretty much at the time that peter starts to notice that effectiveness is falling Mm. and there was a shift away from advertising that seeks to entertain, that has narrative, that has music, that might have metaphor and humour, towards a sort of advertising that was pretty direct in its style, quite mechanistic towards advertising that is pretty flat and has words on the screen and is sort of short, sharp cuts, that kind of thing, very rhythmic as well in the way it looks and sounds, and dislocated from time and place. And that shift happens around that same time. And indeed, when you look at the relationship between, as I do in my second book, Look Out, 
these two styles of advertising, you see that this broader, more general advertising with narrative, metaphor, music, people connecting in it, something happening, you know, in front of us, that's much better at generating these broad and lasting effects. And that this sort of more mechanistic and linear, flat, you know, words on the screen, rhythmic type advertising, if it works at all, is better at generating these sort of short-term effects, directing people to a website, you know, who are probably already in the buying window, who are already open and receptive to the category or taking them to an app or, you know, that kind of thing. Mm. So these two styles of advertising work in different ways. They should be measured in different ways. And, you know, we've neglected the more important type over the last 15 years or so. And so what happens in around 2006 that causes this change? I mean, obviously, one's mind goes to sort of the rise of programmatic advertising and, of course, social media. Is there anything else that happens around that time that you think could be sort of one of the... Yeah, well, there are lots of things going on at the time. And, you know, you mentioned a few of them there. I mean, we were becoming increasingly digital Mm. at that time to the point that it was actually quite difficult to do the analysis because prior to that, digital records didn't exist, you know, (laughs) for, you know, the kind of just looking at the types of ads that, you know, were out there. And so you get a lot of things happening. There were a lot of mergers and acquisitions. You know, it was a time Hmm. of bigness. And there was also, you know, advertising, I think, was becoming more global. So an ad sort of had to work everywhere. Something that, that of course, digital technology sort of enables you to do. And therefore, an ad that works everywhere, you know, as I often say, doesn't tend to work anywhere necessarily particularly well because it can't tap into local culture and nuance. And with technology, of course, it becomes, in some ways, easier to create certain kinds of ad. Hmm. And also it means that suddenly we can cut these ads up into smaller parts, re-edit them, put them somewhere else. Right. And that takes you to a certain style of advertising that's quite different from, say, a almost like a comedy sketch that unfolds in front of you, mm. you know, with people acting. You can't cut that up so easily into smaller parts. And everything just becomes a bit more direct, you know. But it's not just in advertising you see these shifts, as I show in both books. You know, you see a more literal, linear, direct kind of entertainment being made in this period and a move away from things that show people connecting in a place, you know. Mm. Fewer sitcoms being made. You see, you know, the sorts of film that are being made, fewer romance and comedies. You've got a general shift in culture as a result of this new technology. I mean, that's just absolutely fascinating to think about beyond advertising things like, right, sitcoms and rom-coms, etc. So before we go any further, why don't we just set up some basic definitions? Because, you know, as you've been speaking there, you've been sort of, I guess, juxtaposing these two types of advertising, which I know, of course, map to this concept of sort of left brain versus right brain. Why don't you give us a quick overview of that? And I know that has very much been inspired by someone else that you've been following, but just for the listeners and the viewers, sort of, you know, of what are the sides of the brain? And I guess, you know. Yeah. So anyone listening might be thinking, well, this left brain, right brain thing, hasn't that been debunked? The two halves of the brain might do different things. Well, the fact that they might do different things, I think has rightly been debunked. But what I do is I follow the work of a brilliant 
a psychiatrist, neuroscientist, and indeed philosopher, you could say, mm. called Ian McGilchrist. And Ian McGilchrist is perhaps the world's expert on brain lateralization and how the two halves of the brain, the two hemispheres, pay attention to the world. And so Ian reframes the question and he says, well, it's not that they do different things, it's that they do things differently. They have different hmm. takes on the world, different priorities, different modes of attention. And so he describes how, in fact, the two hemispheres are quite different in the way that the brain is asymmetrical, the mm. right brain slightly heavier, slightly bigger than the left hemisphere, that they respond differently to different sorts of drugs and hormones. The right brain's got more white matter, you know, mm. which speeds communication. The left brain prioritizes communication within localized brain regions. So differences which suggest a different style mm. of attention. And not just in people, but in other mammals and indeed in birds. And what he sort of describes is that the left hemisphere is very narrow in its attentional field. It brings a kind of narrow beam attention to things, whereas the right hemisphere brings a kind of broad beam attention. It understands context, it understands the whole, it understands the world around it. Mm. It's there, you know, whilst the left hemisphere is trying to identify what it can eat and close up and you know categorize it and hmm. and say yeah this is okay the right hemisphere is looking around it all the time making sure that we don't become someone else's lunch you know it's a very different <laughs> kind of attention it's this broad beam attention as opposed to this narrow beam attention of the left hemisphere but it doesn't really stop there because the left hemisphere as well as being narrow beam it's very goal orientated it likes to categorize things to identify them Categorization is usually a means to an end to control and manipulate the world around you so that it's kind of, I guess, a helpful mechanism right. in many ways for us. But, you know, the left brain likes things that are familiar. Oh, it's one of those, you mm. know, is kind of how it thinks. And it's quite rigid and quite fixed in its thinking. And it can't really understand music, metaphor, humor. Like it can't see things in depth, so it tends to flatten things almost like a map, you know, so it produces a kind of shorthand symbol or a sign rather than understanding the thing in all its uniqueness. Hmm. It can understand sort of basic rhythm, but not much more than that. And it's also usually the side of the brain that deals principally with language. It likes tools and things with which to manipulate the world and language mm -hmm. and signs and symbols, you know, are sort of chief of these things. It's also got a very high sense of its own importance, funnily enough. It, there's no room for ambiguity. It can't bear risk, any of those things. And it's often overly optimistic as well, pretty dogmatic. So that's kind of the left hemisphere. It feels like a character assassination, but that's kind of <laughs> how it sort of operates. But the right hemisphere, which presents the world to us in the first place and connects us with the world and connects us with the people in it and grounds us in the world, hmm. really, is very different. So it's got this broad beam attention. It understands context. It understands people, their intonation, their accents, emotional expression. It's responsible for emotional expression as well, largely. And it has this ability to understand that, you know, two opposing thoughts could both be true at the same time. So it sort right. of understands things on two levels. So it understands metaphor, it understands humor, whereas the left hemisphere will think that a joke is a lie. The right hemisphere understands that it's a joke. Right. You know, the right hemisphere it gives us our sense of space, depth, lived time, 
it gives us our appreciation of music as well and flow mm. you know things that move and change rather than like train tracks you know short sharp now this now this now this now this now this so you've got very different way of perceiving the world really through the two hemispheres and that of course brings into being a very different world for us and what you find is that as i try to describe in the books is that there in certain times in history you get this and i think it's largely when you see new technologies right. emerging new tools for the left hemisphere to play with you get this sort of slight sort of switch towards a left hemisphere dominance in a culture right and you know oh, by the way anger lateralizes to the left hemisphere too and so you get this sort of shift in culture in music in art and i think we're seeing that today and and we're certainly seeing it in the types of features that you see in advertising you may have noticed as i was talking that the sorts of features i was talking about in advertising these short sharp cuts this lack of you know narrative mm. lack of a sense of place and time a move away from people doing things you know in a scene with each other towards this sort of rigidity and if you see people at all it's just their hands or a staring blank face right you see this move towards a devitalized kind of advertising one that's more mechanistic yeah more rhythmic all the sorts of features that you sort of expect to see in a sort of left brain appreciation of the world so perhaps a really silly question but why is it then that because so that was a brilliant summary of sort of the left and versus the right. And I think everyone listening and watching sort of can instinctively think back to advertising and sort of write this very flat, devitalized, very much shapes and rhythmic. And I think, you know, that very much feels like the sort of the current moment in advertising, I guess, particularly online. And maybe people can think back to, at least for me, if I think back to the, you know, the great Australian beer ads of the 90s, very narrative, very sense of place very sort of culturally, you know, whether it's accents or regional sort of ideas. I think everyone can sort of see that. Why is one more effective than the other? So I totally get the difference, but why is it that we feel more affinity and have stronger sort of emotional resonance to right brain advertising, given as you've laid that up, they're very different, but you know, aren't we rational? Why would not very cold yet very factual logical why does that not stick with us well what i try to show in the books is that these two ways of paying attention to the world actually mirror the two types the two schools of advertising that i mm. described a few minutes ago that for this sort of broad and general advertising that lodges brands in memory and that you know works by being interesting actually by creating interest in the brand or product actually for this you need to think about capturing and sustaining broad beam attention mm. and that for the other type of advertising that's sort of more narrowly targeted you might want to think more about kind of narrow beam attention because that's probably really the job there is to remind people who already know about you about the product people who are probably in the buying window right now that's sort of the idea that i expand on in look out mm. and i show how advertising that has these right brain features of dialogue and narrative and people and characters, humor, metaphor, you know, all these sorts of things, music, these are the things that elicit an emotional response, that capture and sustain attention, that lodge a brand in memory, mm. actually, that create trust, that create esteem for a brand, 
that essentially treat the audience with some intelligence mm. and get the audience to do some of the job. That is to say, you present something to the audience and they read the context in the ad and they put some of the pieces together in their own minds and make a connection with the ad, with the brand and lodge it in memory. Whereas the left hemisphere advertising I've been talking about, it's kind of very direct. It's me at you. It's look at my product. It's like throwing up a product brochure mm. at people. That will only work if you're vaguely interested in buying, I don't know, whatever it is, a new sofa at that moment. And will probably only work if you've already heard of the brand in the first place. You know, I mean, maybe you'll consider it if you haven't, but it will work better if you've heard of the brand in the first place through the other type of advertising. So, yeah, so I overlay these features on effectiveness data and show just how important these right brain features are in advertising for growth, really. I've seen online in some talks that you've given saying that, you know, perhaps we're at a turning point. Tell me, where do you think this goes? Do you think the industry has the ability to swing back towards, you know, maybe embracing the craft back towards right brain advertising in that, you know, you talked about technology shifts and I think 06 is such an interesting year because it's, of course, it's that, I guess, true digital mainstream adoption and social media. Where do you think AI and some of this generative stuff that's coming out how do you think that maybe plays against a potential turning point? Where do things go from here? Well, let's take the first one first. Where are we now? Well, I'd like to think that we're at a turning point and maybe that, you know, now everyone's back together after COVID and everything, that we're back on the right track and we're together again. But I think it's probably a little bit too early to put the bunting out, to put the flags out yet. And Peter's continued assessment from the IPA's effectiveness data suggests not really much improvement mm. in the most recent data he was telling me about. I think we're still some way off. And certainly when you look at advertising, a lot of advertising that you, particularly on TV, you know, TV you'd expect to be a, a narrative, right. audio visual, you know, humorous kind of entertainment channel for advertising. And it's still very much, a lot of it looks very much like this this sort of narrow beam mm. advertising that has been learned, I think, from online environments, from online platforms, from social media. So, yeah, a bit too early, I would say, to put the flags out. But I think there is a growing feeling that amongst marketeers that I speak to, that it would be wonderful if we could bring some of this craft back mm. because it is more effective, more memorable. I'm sure he wouldn't mind me saying this, but Sir John Hegarty said to me, you know, I'm sure it'll come back, you know, because it works. Mm. It will just take time. I'm hoping to provide the evidence for that kind of route and that shift back yeah. again. And I think if nothing else, I mean, I think the success of your books and the sort of the subsequent discussions, at least online in the agency world, seem to indicate that it's becoming more of a discussion and a topic. Well, I hope so. I think so. I mean, because I think creative conferences in particular has taken a bit of a back seat and you rarely see an ad at an advertising conference. It's all about measurement. Yeah, that's fascinating, isn't it? We've become very scientific, haven't we, mm. about quantifying things rather than reflecting on their qualities, you know? And science has a tendency to reduce things, to look down on things and to make close up, a bit like the left hemisphere, to break them up into smaller parts. And actually advertising's role is to look out, you know, as the book suggests, and connect with people 
in the general public. It's got more in common than theatre than it has with science, in my view. That's fascinating. That's why I think this is so important. So your next question was about AI. It's going to be the thing that people are talking about an awful lot, isn't it? And it does have the potential to change the world enormously. And also, in a world that's barely got to grips with the new digital technologies that are around us, seeks to cause even greater confusion, I think. You know, what is real and what isn't real? Mm. I'm sure creative agencies, I know they're looking at it and using it in some cases. I believe it was Tom Roach who said this, so sorry, Tom, if you didn't, said that one of the good things about AI is that, you know, you can plug your brief into it and it will give you the obvious things and then, you know, those are the things not to do. Right, that's interesting. I think it's a lovely idea. If you Great idea. Tom said that. Look, it can get you to things quite quickly to a pretty good level of finish, I think. But I just think at the moment it fundamentally misses the most important thing, which is lived human experience. Mm. And it's sort of lived human experience by proxy, isn't it? At least one step removed. And uh, it will always need, I think, people to connect it. I mean, it may be a useful, interesting starting point, but Mm. I think it might also, if you look at the way that AI, you look at art created by Mm. AI, And it looks a very strange thing, very dystopian, twisted, dark. And perhaps that's because of what's been fed into it. And maybe that's just the modern vibe. I don't think it will really understand theatre, back to my earlier point. I think my broader thinking is it goes back to the classic zag. You know, when everyone zigs, it's better to zag. And I suspect, especially in marketing, what will become interesting in a generative AI world will be the opposite. That just feels true of culture and I guess art generally speaking throughout time, as you say, sort of countercultures to culture. And Yeah, I think if everyone jumps that way, then there's room for real. You know, advertising with that can display a sense of betweenness and connection where something of real meaning that speaks of the experience of life will become important. I could literally sit and talk to you all day about this, but I am very conscious of your time. So I thought we could move on to a quick fire round. And I'd like to start with what might be a tricky question. What is your favorite marketing campaign, Orlando, of all time? What's your personal favorite? It's really hard, isn't it, to choose these things, but you're going to make me do it, aren't you? Yep. (laughs) One that I've often referenced in my presentations is Heineken refreshes the parts that other beers cannot reach. I just think because it is a metaphor for something and because it was done so playfully and so brilliantly and the way that it evolved, you know, refreshes the poets that other beers cannot reach. Mm. It was just so clever and it had fun with itself as well. You know, I mean, there's there's one with an announcer saying, you know, do you like a good laugh? You know, I do. Well, I'm sorry to say here's another Heineken commercial type thing, you know, self-aware. It knew that it was advertising. It was knew it was having fun. It treated the audience with respect. It got the audience to fill in the gaps to get the joke. And there's so many lessons there, of course. Now, that's television advertising. I think you probably also want to reference at least because it was so influential the VW campaign by DDB because that did all the things that we've I think increasingly forgetting about you know finding some magic in the product itself looking at it through the audience's eyes doing something that 
none of the other people were doing at the same time, mm. you know, so showing the car as short rather than long, talking in terms of ugliness rather than perfection, talking about how it never changed rather than, you know, the very latest gadget or feature. I did it with humour, you mm. know, and it also, the whole ad looked like a whole. It was kind of a letter rather than the product brochure, which what everyone else was doing. Yeah. So I think that is a really important campaign that we can still learn a lot from. And I think what's interesting about that is, so one of the questions I was going to get to before but didn't was because, yeah, you brought up this idea of TV being a very natural medium to have these more maybe narrative, context-driven stories because I guess you have literally the canvas to do that. And one of the things I was going to ask you was, you know, is it possible to do that level of right brain advertising in other mediums? And I think that's a great example. I think, you know, brilliant copy, whether it's brochures, billboards or whatever. I mean, I think I look at Oatly as an example and, you know, whether you like it or not, I think, you know, they very much feel like they bring humour reverence, self-awareness. I think they do that to a degree, almost to the absurd level. It's sort of a knowing wink or a nod, isn't it? You know, you know what we're up to here. That's the sort of tone of voice that, you know, you've got to let the audience in on the joke, let them know that you know type thing. Create that connection. In any advertising, you have to be more interesting or entertaining than the content or programming that surrounds it. That's an interesting idea. So, you know, on TV, you have to be, definitely have to be more entertaining than the things that are around it. And in print advertising, you've got to be more interesting than the printed word around it and more visually arresting. Mm. You know? And with billboards, you've got to have, you know, you've got to create a kind of, as David Ogilvy put it, a visual scandal. You know, you've got to create something that's going to really stand out against the environment. Those are, I think, important principles to abide by. Yeah, that's brilliant. I think those, all of those examples. And I guess the other one I'd just mention because I spoke to Jamie from McCann the other day, was that, of course, the classic gene-like brands, only cheaper, the sort of the, yes. I don't like tea, I like gin. I mean, that was just... That's right. Well, look, we work with Jamie and I know Jamie very well. You know, I'd like to say we've helped. I think he would say we've helped System One in the development of the, particularly the Kevin the Carrot advertising and creating character and, you know, making sure that it's sort of, well, as successful as it is, you know, it's kind of as entertaining as, well, more entertaining than most <laughs> most other Christmas ads in the UK. And that's... Uh... The proof is in the pudding. I mean, the little plug. So a couple of episodes before this, I did speak to Jamie and we dug into Kevin and all the success they've had. So definitely go and listen to that if yeah, you haven't already. Absolutely. So Orlando, the name of this show is Own the Moment, which I guess for us is this idea of really sort of, I guess, an encapsulation of everything we've talked about today. How do you rise above and sort of earn and win attention in any moment, whether it's sitting on the sofa, walking the aisles of the supermarket or, you know, driving down the motorway. Mm. What to you is the best example of a brand that you've seen sort of own a moment? Oh, wow. That's a good question. And I think, you know, there are a few examples that sort of perhaps we could talk about. I mean, I think McDonald's has been doing quite a nice job recently and their recent ad was with a sort of office workers going out for a McDonald's was very interesting and the eyebrows and the music of course it really is about seizing the moment that whole ad in fact when you think about it owning the moment there was something theatrical a sort of performance about the whole thing and of course referencing the film I think mm. Ferris Bueller you know 
I think that was worth a mention. Mm. So I think that was quite a nice recent and fairly contemporary example. I think Mars's brands have been very good for years, you know, consistently good. Snickers, you're not you when you're hungry. Brilliant. The M&M's characters, you know, Maltesers. They've all done entertaining and consistently good work with an idea really at the heart of them or a character, you know, a set of characters at the heart of them. So I think they're worth a mention. Also, in the, I mean, in the UK, I think Yorkshire Tea is also worth a mention too for its long-running idea and this exaggeration to comic lengths of the lengths to which they go to give you a proper cup of tea. You know, yeah, I think that's brilliant. And it reminds me of something I know Mark Ritson has said before, I can't remember where I heard it, but this idea of brands give up on an idea too quickly. And I think there's something valuable in that idea of the longevity of an idea and that an idea, a small creative idea, it can grow in both effectiveness and all of the other things that we'd like to measure with, you know. It can, it can evolve. You might not get there immediately. You know, it might take a little time to evolve into something that really finds its feet. Often it, you'll find it wears out in the boardroom more quickly than it does with the general public. See, that's interesting. That's extremely interesting because it sounds obvious, but I don't think it is actually that obvious to people. I think it's often the case. And, you know, also you'll get a new CMO coming in <laughs> wanting to change things probably. So put their mark on the whole thing. So then that's one of the things I talk about in Lemon, actually, and is that I describe it as the fluent device, but the long-running character or the long-running scenario, some of those we just mentioned with Mars, Yorkshire Tea are exactly that. You know, they're much more effective. They're easier to recognize. They tend to be character-based in some way, so they capture the attention of the right hemisphere. They lodge things in memory. They're more emotional, and they can reduce price sensitivity and result in greater likelihood of share and profit gain so but they've been disappearing you know all the while in mm. this technological age characters disappear and things become more mechanistic it is funny and you know i'm sort of quite new to this world and this show is about me diving into it because there's something to me that i know is wrong as i've been doing the research but there's something about like whether it's the energizer bunny or the m&m characters it feels outdated as a tool, but of course, you know, all of the research and you guys have been a big part of that tells you that it's the opposite, right? But it's funny, isn't it? And, you know, maybe it's just me, but I get the sense that it probably isn't just me because as you say, brands are moving away from mascots, characters in favor of this more sort of, you know, flat, devitalized left brain advertising. And, you know, coming into this world, I definitely, if you'd asked me, you know, I would, yeah, it feels like that's, that's an old school tactic, but of course it shouldn't be. When you get periods like the one I think we're in, this often happens, you know, this desire to trash the past. Right. And to say that, you know, well, that's no longer relevant. And that's actually something the left brain is not very good at understanding the past, its own past, right. its own connection with the body and the history. And the left brain often thinks it knows best when it doesn't most of the time. It doesn't know what it doesn't know. Yeah, that's fascinating. So you do tend to get this, and it's often something that people say to me, you know, is, oh, why are you looking back at these old ads? Well, because that's what great artists do, you know. I mean, without Mantegna, Veronese, you know, the great artists of the Renaissance, there would be no Rembrandt. Rembrandt studied these artists and incorporated their thinking in his own 
brilliant painting. Right, and we still listen to the Beatles and the Stones. Yeah, and, and actually what in periods, I think, which are a bit devitalised, like the one we're in, you actually need to look back at what's gone before to give you the energy and the light, really, to move forward. We need to build on what we know rather than assume that it was all wrong. That's an important point because it's not that, you know, right, we should look back and, you know, just redo what, you know, of course you can innovate. And I think, you know, to move away from advertising for a moment, I think music is the ultimate example of that, right, where sort of, you know, looking back and then mixing that with, you know, maybe more contemporary inspiration can launch entirely new genres and styles. And I think, you know, the same, of course, will be and is true in advertising and I guess all forms of creativity as well, Yes, which is great. Right, that's right. And it's, it's funny, isn't it, how music captures the spirit of a period and you can actually hear the energy of that period in right. music, much like painting, actually, but music in particular. Because music is all about life and movement, so that's how it does it. Yeah, we didn't get to music and advertising today. No, very effective. Maybe we'll have to have a round two because I think the jingle and the role of music in both of these left and right brain forms of advertising would be really interesting. So my next question is, what's the most overrated trend in marketing and advertising right now, according to you? Oh, goodness. I suppose AI, we've talked a bit about AI. We'll have to see where that goes. I mean, I do talk a little bit, I don't go into it in too much detail in Lookout, but purpose advertising, I mean, it depends how you define purpose, doesn't it? But, you know, has been on the rise, you know, if you look at the awards that are given for campaigns in Cannes. And at the same time, humorous campaigns have been falling from the awards, you know, tables. You don't see them so much anymore. And that, I think that worries me because purpose advertising can be quite worthy, you know, and it doesn't always connect with broad audiences. And there are ways, I think, of doing it that, you know, you can. Why couldn't you, as I say in the book, you know, why can't it be more humorous? Why can't it be done with humor, wit and charm? Because I think that it can. I think Maltesers have sort of done that quite well. So I think that's an interesting trend. And, you know, if you were to ask me, well, what aren't we talking about enough, which maybe you are, I'd say, well, I don't think we're talking about humour enough. I don't think we're doing it enough. And it's a very effective, creative approach. It's not just a way of connecting with the audience. By the way, the late Jeremy Bullmore once said to me, you know, laughter is a sign that a connection has been made. And he's, he's absolutely right. He's yeah. absolutely right on that. I'm sure you saw Oatley's spam newsletter campaign oh, right. that was yes. big. And I will have Kevin Lynch from Oatly, who was behind that campaign on the show soon. And anyway, I was talking to one of my friends who works in advertising and I was asking, you know, what do you think? And, and just for those who haven't seen it, it was, you know, they had this newsletter, which feels like an utterly bizarre thing to promote on billboards in Times Square, by the way. And I guess that is part of the humour. Have some fun with the medium, I often say. Yeah, absolutely. But And the copy, I just, I mean, the copy was brilliant. So, you know, they have this one billboard in Times Square and it says, you know, what would be crazier than renting a billboard in Times Square to promote a newsletter? And then in the background, there's a second billboard and another building that says, you know, buying two. It's just brilliant. And anyway, this agency friend of mine, he said, you know, to make someone smile, you know, maybe not even laugh, but just smile is such a powerful, yeah. it's evidence of connection. And I think 
going back to own the moment, I think for me, that's one of the things that I very much think about is, right, if you can elicit some sort of emotional response. Yeah. And I guess, you know, the opposite going back to purpose, you know, sadness or maybe even guilt, I guess that is an equally strong emotional response. It is, but in brand building terms, it's better to leave people feeling either good about you or that there's something they can do about it. Right, that's interesting. In terms of the ways, you know, we tend to remember positively associated events longer than we do negative ones, unless they're really bad. Yeah. And that, you know, it's important in advertising to make people feel good, to charm them and to make them feel you know, you're invading their space in some way. So, sure. you know, the least you can do is to leave them feeling a little bit better about things. So you've got to have a sense of humor, a sense of charm, hope, mm. all of those things. But I was going to say that the other thing that humor does is that because of the way it works, it's often about, you know, inverting things or turning things upside down or, you know, repetition or exaggeration. We talked about Yorkshire tea earlier. Mm. It actually gives you a way of, creating a long-running campaign it's something that can structure give structure to a campaign to an idea Mm. it's also a metaphor that can help you communicate something about your product the virtue of your product you know we go to extreme lengths to dot 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 you know your exaggeration so i think it's more than just about connecting in the ad it can help you to shape a whole campaign and you know, we, I think we ignore it at our peril and at our loss. I can't help but feel it, it must say something about the time that we're living in. I mean, of course, we've dug into this whole idea of the left brain sort of dominating the not just advertising, but the culture. But, you know, I guess tying back to humour or the lack of humour and maybe the rise of social purpose, is there a sense that, you know, we're in particularly sort of dire times or whatever, you know, I don't know, with everything from the war in the Ukraine to climate change and the recession and everything else. And I wonder if there's this, if some of that gloom has sort of seeped into creativity. Oh, totally. You know, I mean, advertising does not exist in a vacuum. It is a barometer for what's going on around. It reflects the world and it kind of also leads the conversation as well. You know, it's sort of a bit of both and you see it. I mean, if you read, look out, you know, I'd go into this in some detail, you actually see it in the ads. And it, some of the ads in, in, actually in Lookout, I talk about how they even look like some of the art from the 1500s right. following the invention of the printing presses and also the early 20th century before the Great War and everything that followed. Mm. You know, a really tense, anxious, fearful time mm. when new technologies sort of upend the world. And you see it in the art of those periods you know, the solemnity of the art of the mm. Reformation, the flatness, the words on the canvas, pretty much like advertising today. You know, the art of a period tells you something of the psyche of the period. And mm. I think that's true for advertising. That's fascinating. So last question, Orlando, who is the most interesting marketeer in the world right now? Well, I gave the example of McDonald's a minute ago. I think that was interesting. That was good. I do like the Yorkshire Tea campaign. Mm. I think the Mars stable has been very good. I do like the work the Warburtons have been doing mm. as well. So from an advertising point of view, those are some of the examples. I think Specsavers have for many years done some brilliant work and I think they're doing some really nice things. So there are some wonderful precedents and examples still out there and, you know, 
hats off to them. I hope others as inspired by them as I am. That's a nice optimistic take to end on. I absolutely recommend everyone go and read both Lemon and Lookout. And Orlando, thank you so much for being on the show. Absolute pleasure, James. Lovely chatting. Thanks for listening to the On The Moment podcast. If you liked this episode, make sure you're subscribed so you don't miss upcoming episodes. And to suggest a guest or provide feedback, please visit our dedicated podcast hub at ownthemomentpod.com 